Hi there, you're listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. My name is Matt Wakeling and this is the show I produce in Sydney, Australia, where I speak to leading guitarists and guitar figures from all around the world. Thank you so much for joining me for episode number 107. Now today I speak to New York guitar luthier Rick Kelly. For over 50 years, Rick has been handcrafting guitars in New York City. Some of Rick's customers include Bob Dylan, Bill Frizzell and Lou Reed and we speak about those artists and much more. Now recently Rick's work has been documented in a fantastic film called Carmine Street Guitars which is the name of Rick's shop and the film was created by filmmaker Ron Mann. Now not only does the film feature some fantastic guitar performances as people like Charlie Sexton, Kirk Douglas, Mark Rebo, Bill Frizzell and more all rock up to Rick's shop and have a play and a chat. It really documents a, a, real, a real sense of community in a neighborhood that has become increasingly gentrified. Rick continues to build these guitars by hand and there's a, a wonderful uh, relationship between Rick, his mum who still works in the shop and looks after the books and his apprentice Sidney Haluge who also does some incredible work. It's a beautiful documentary. There are links to the trailer in our show notes but right now Let's jump over to my interview with Rick Kelly. I began by asking him when he started building guitars. When did you start building guitars? And were you a guitar player first, or were you just in- interested in the building? Uh, actually, yeah, I um, kind of played music a bit in high school and uh, actually started making uh, guitars. Actually, I just celebrated 50 years of guitar making. So the wow, first fantastic. one I made was in high school, actually, in 1968. And I've just been doing nothing ever since. I've just always been a guitar maker, and that's, uh, you know, what I do. Fantastic. Do you remember um, that first guitar? Well, yeah. The first one, actually, in high school was just uh, like a ukulele cigar box. Ukulele was an art project, an art class. But I actually started in uh, about 1970 making uh, Appalachian dulcimers and acoustic instruments. Uh, first, and then I moved to solid bodies by about 1970, 71. Okay, okay, great. And um, are you still making acoustics? The film really focuses on your solid bodies, but uh, yeah, do you still build acoustic guitars? Not too much. No, uh, acoustics, um, you know, I can only do them here in the winter months when it's very dry. It's too, uh, it's too, way too humid during the summer, okay. and you have to have a climate-controlled environment to build them so i used to build like one a year in the winter months but i have so many orders now for solid bodies i just don't get a chance anymore to do acoustics yeah sure sure so wow so 970 71 you're building electrics um who were your first clients and what, what were the first um guitars you were commercially building well, I had a shop around the corner in the mid-70s. Uh, it was on Downing Street, and uh, I got to meet David Bowie and John Bellucci and uh, Lou Reed, and I started making instruments way back then. But, uh, you know, this shop's been here now 30 years, the shop I've been in now, and just about everybody I've, uh, you know, uh, made for here and, and get to know a lot of, a lot of musicians. Fantastic. So when you say where you are now, that's obviously the Carmen Street Guitars location. Yeah, we're on uh, 42 Carmine Street, and Carmine Street's a small block that goes 
kind of between Sixth Avenue and Seventh Avenue, and it's down in the Greenwich Village area where all the streets are kind of not part of the grid. In New York City, there's a grid where everything runs parallel up and down, but down here it's the old part of the city where everything's kind of on an angle. So it's uh, one of those little angled streets between Sixth and Seventh Avenue. From what from what I'm saying, Greenwich Village obviously has an amazing musical history, but it's become quite uh, yes. gentrified in the last, I don't know, 20, 30 mm-hmm. years. You seem to have resisted um, that and, and, and kept uh, kept the same vibe in, in your shop there. Yeah, the uh, this area is changing all the time. It's always kind of been the way New York City always goes through changes. But this is an old Italian neighborhood. Before that, it was an Irish neighborhood. A lot of the streets, you know, Sullivan Street and Thompson Street are all Irish names. But uh, now we are on Carmine Street, where the Italians moved in, I guess, in the in the 1800s. So this is an old building, an 1827 building that we're in, and um, it's uh, you know it's mostly an Italian neighborhood down here. But yeah, the Greenwich Village area really goes has been through a lot of changes. And uh, most of them positive, I would think. Yeah. Is there still a sense of community um, that you're familiar with in in, uh, in that area where you are? Yeah, this uh, this store is kind of that way. We uh, sometimes, like Ron refers to it as a, a post office because, you know, somebody will leave something here for Jim Jarmish or somebody, you know, because <laughs> they know they come in here. But uh, they, I sort of... Uh, accept stuff for, you know, people, messages as well as books and whatever people (laughs) leave by for somebody else. Yeah, it kind of has that same old community vibe to the area and the neighborhood is still that much. Oh, I love that. That's great. There's a scene in the movie when you're riding your bike to work, so I assume you live nearby. Yeah, I live live within uh, walking distance or a bike ride away. I'm uh, over in a neighborhood called Soho. Uh, and that's an old neighborhood as well. It's an old cast iron area. Used to be mostly factories, and then it, uh, a lot of the artists moved in there in the 1950s and 60s and made lofts out of the old factory buildings. And most of the, the industry moved out of the city. You know, there's almost no industry here anymore, and uh, so it's now um, gone from that to being like Rodeo Drive. All the you know, Golche, Dabana, and uh, Chanel, and stores like that have moved into that neighborhood. Uh, I do live over there, so I, I see that it's mostly on the block every weekend. It's just mostly Europeans visiting, lots of tourists. and But it's got its own charm with the old cast iron. I love the cobblestone streets, and it, it's like the way it was. It's historic now, so they're not allowed to really change any of the architecture. Okay, okay. You, you mentioned in the in the movie, I think if I heard right, uh, growing up on Long Island. Is that correct? Yes, I'm. Uh, I grew up. I was born in Jamaica in Queens, which is you know New York City limits. And then uh, mom and dad moved out to the uh, southern part of the island uh, about 1955, and uh, I went to school out there and. Uh, I used to come into the village in the 1960s and see Jimi Hendrix and and uh, you know the Chambers Brothers and different acts back in the early 60s. I used to come in on the train and, and uh, got to visit the neighborhood. It was it was really a kind of a hip scene, a lot of bohemian type atmosphere here back in those days. It was really a uh, you know the the old Greenwich Village. Wow, and that, that was some of I know Jimmy's um, earliest gigs. Were tell me about. A formative Jimi Hendrix. 
Yeah, he uh, used to live in this neighborhood and um, actually almost lived across the street. And then an old friend of mine, Mike Quashi, used to live right on the corner here. And he was really good friends with Jimi Hendrix. And he used to, he wound up with a lot of Jimi's memorabilia, a lot of his clothing and shoes and records and old guitar amps. And I remember carrying down an old twin reverb that belonged to Jimi Hendrix <laughs> down about five flights of stairs, almost pulled my shoulder out on that one. But yeah, Mike Quashi was a kind of a very hip guy. He was called the Limbo King. He was back in the 1950s. He had some of the earliest uh, rock clubs here in the city and, and he would do the limbo. <laughs> he was from uh, Jamaica, I think at the time and, and really a nice guy, but he just passed away recently. Okay. Okay. What what about um what about the Jimmy shows that you got to see? What did it strike you at the time that there was yeah, something I very special? Coming in, uh, yeah, about nineteen sixty four or five I I came in and uh, one day I was actually coming in to see the mothers of invention and I got had to wait until uh, that show came on, and I went around the corner to the Cafe Wa, and uh, that's uh, Jimi Hendrix, and it was actually Jimmy James and the Flames back oh, then. Okay, yeah. And he was uh, playing playing guitar, and I just remembered his wrist was like rubber. He he moved his hands so differently on the guitar, and had these big big fat fingers, and uh, he he just played like nothing I had ever heard before. I kind of got uh, you know hooked on the guitar after seeing him play. Fantastic! Wow, what a what a slice of history that would have been catching him early early on. Yeah. Now let, let's move on to your, your guitars a little a little more. Um, in the in the film, you say Leo Fender got it right the first time, and of course, you're talking about the Telecaster, or I guess the Esquire. Um, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I think the uh, earliest guitars that, you know, electric guitars were really a feeling out process. I don't think they would even had any idea that they would take off. In fact, they almost did fail until the Stratocaster came out in uh, in 54. The Telecaster was just an experiment, really. In fact, Leo was building amplifiers first, and most of the guitars at that time were semi-hollow body, uh, hollow body actually, with F-holes, acoustic guitars that had pickups in them. And he was building amplifiers for that type of guitar. And I, when they had the idea of building a solid body, I'm sure he was inf- influenced by Paul Bigsby and uh, Rickenbacker Brothers that built a solid body lap steel instrument. He was going to be uh, building lap steel instruments, already was. But the first guitar he made in the shape of the modern Telecaster was about 1948. And uh, you can really see a lot of Paul Bigsby's influence in that guitar. And in fact, the legend goes that uh, Leo had Paul's guitar with him for uh, a couple of months before he came out with the Telecaster. But to me, it was just a brilliant design. You know, it was uh, a George Fullerton designed body and uh, Leo's amplification and, um, you know, neck scale and everything. They just sort of figured it all out, got it right the first time. It's, it's pretty amazing. I'm always knocked out, Rick, by how few changes there've been to the electric guitar since I don't know, it seems like by fifty eight they'd between Fender and, and Gibson they'd sort sorted out all the big ideas and, and we still cling to them today. Yeah, no, it's true. I think that was like what I meant by Leo Fender getting it right the first time yeah, because yeah. the Stratocaster was also a great guitar and still is, but the Jazz Master and Jaguars and all the uh, models that came afterward kind of almost came and went, even though the 
the Jazz Master and Jaguars are having a little resurgence now. Yeah, at the yeah. time, they uh, they just weren't as successful because there was just a little too many knobs and switches and gimmicks going on the guitars at that time. And I think the simplified sound is much about as much as a guitarist can handle when he's on stage trying to remember where, what position, what pickup he's in. It's better if you only have one pickup. You don't have to worry. You can just concentrate on your playing. So guitarists have really generally gone back to simplification. It uh, enables them to play the guitar more fluently, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see someone like Bill Frizzell, and I know he owns a bunch of guitars. I know he owns quite a few of yours, but... um. There's a there's that clip where he plays Surfer Girl in the film on just one of your one pickup uh, Telly style guitars yeah. and um and the range of yeah. tones is amazing you don't miss the neck pickup it's it's just a beautiful um, beautiful playing so in in the hands of a great player yeah that one pickup thing can can really speak yeah it's like uh, you know Kirk uh, Douglas in the movie actually says. You know, what else do you need? Wood, pickup, strings, electricity, boom. <laughs> yeah. I think that was one of the greatest lines in the movie. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. That's cool. And I like it how he's playing a guitar and then he very politely says, you know, can I turn it up a little? Can you, can you turn your amp up a little? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know. That's awesome. He's a great guy. Very cool. Let's. Um, I, I want to talk about some of these guitarists a bit more. Uh, in, in a moment, but if I can stay on the guitars for for a, a, a while, um, so you, you love building Tele style guitars, obviously. Um, I did see a few guitars on the wall, though, um, kind of Strat, Super Strats. There, were, there were a few um, Floyd Rose guitars in the background. I think uh, Jimmy Hints starts off playing playing one of those, but but yeah. moves to a more traditional. Yeah, he was playing one of my Eagle guitars, and back in uh, nineteen seventy six. I uh, wanted to celebrate the bicentennial year and uh, wanted to make an eagle-shaped guitar with our red, white, and blue stars and stripes paint job on it. And that was the first uh, of an era of uh, eagle-head guitars that I made that went all the way through into the 1980s. And then I went through that stage where you know heavy metal and rock, heavy acid music was very popular. So I did a lot of those type of you know, modified Strat style guitars with open horns and uh, two octave necks, and you know, for the uh, you know Floyd Rose bridges and that that tremolo stuff. And I, I still appreciate those guitars and I still love them, but uh, I just don't make them anymore. Most of the people want my uh, Telus Telecaster style. I guess you just sort of develop a style, and that's become my style. But I'm okay with that. Sure, sure. Tell me about your use of reclaimed wood. That's so interesting. Yeah, the uh, reclaimed wood is something that goes back to my days in college. Even when I first started building instruments, I was looking for inexpensive ways to buy materials to make them out of because I just didn't have money. So it's always been a kind of a find used wood uh, that you could, uh, you know, uh, procure and. A lot of, I always knew that old instruments sound better than new instruments, and that um, you know that uh, was has always held true. So finding the old wood is something I've been doing for a very long time. But the New York City timber is very special stuff. It's it's a species of white pine, Pinus strobus, that uh, grew throughout this area all the way up into New York State and the Adirondacks, and a lot of it was barged down into the city 
to build these old buildings. And uh, that's why I call it the bones of old New York, because it's the framework of all these old 1800s buildings. And we have the largest depository of old growth timber in the world right here in New York City. Uh, so every building is just chock full of this wonderful wood that, uh, you know, is floor joists and roof rafters, and it's so old. It does have a beautiful patina on it, but it also has cracks and nail holes and nails that are still in there. You have to pull the nails out. So it's not the easiest wood to work with. But uh, when you know what it is, you don't really want to go to a lumberyard and buy wood when this stuff's available for free. And as long as you're, uh, you know, inquisitive and you go looking for it, every time I see a dumpster, we do a lot of dumpster diving, finding the wood, and we go to construction sites. And it's not as easy as it would be to go to a lumberyard, but it's well worth it. The sound of the wood is uh, really different. It has a very warm, very resonant tone to the guitar. And, of course, on a solid body electric, that's just as important as on an acoustic. Now, on... On wood, you talk about the molecular structure and the changes that occur over time and why why the old wood is such a great tone yeah. wood for guitar. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a difficult one to explain. I call it the mystery of the molecules because you don't really know what causes that other than the vibrations that are put into the wood. I first started noticing it back when I started doing repairs on guitars and I would see a lot of street musicians. You know, Chris Whitley was a famous street musician that used to, you know, frequently keep guitars, but they sound amazing. And I was wondering why that could be. How could this guitar sound much better than a, an old Gibson that was never played, was under somebody's bed and was in just like almost brand new condition? Uh-huh, well, yeah. it's because it was never played that it, it loses its tone. The instruments have to be played uh, for the vibrations to get into the wood and it all happens on a molecular level. The vibrations affect it. Uh, they say that uh, the guitar at the Met that belonged to Segovia, old Hauser classical, that um, is taken out in the Philharmonic Orchestra. People get to use it just to keep it alive. And the same with the Stradivarius and the Guarnerius violins. They let the uh, people in the Philharmonic play them because they need to be played. They need to stay vibrating. And uh, they say if you play what Segovia played on that guitar, it sounds beautiful. But if you tried to play folk music or something on it, it has a kind of a deadened tone. It doesn't respond because that is the mystery of why that happens. It's all on that molecular level. And it's, it's a beautiful thing, but it is impossible to explain, really. Sure, sure. Um, I guess the other the other obvious um wonderful part of using these woods is that there's there's a, such a story behind each each guitar like you said there's yeah. um you know there's nail holes where they've been nailed to a wall or a floorboard or the rafters or something yeah um yeah i love it that each guitar has a has a story behind it before it was a guitar yeah no i i, I find that really fascinating and a lot of guitarists which i didn't understand in the beginning i was worried that, that they would uh, you know wonder about the knots and the cracks and the check marks in the wood and not be okay with that. But it's more than that. It's uh, they call it character. And to me, that was a surprise, but a, you know, a welcome surprise that it was just in their eyes character. And they wanted a piece of a certain building. I wanted a piece of old New York. 
They wanted a piece of, uh, say, Chumley's, the old speakeasy on Bedford Street, yeah, where the wow. ter- term your 86 comes from. That's 86 Bedford. I got wood out of there. And, you know, when I made a guitar for Bob Dylan, he uh, he definitely had his wood had to come from Chumley's because he would frequent the the, the pub. And uh, it's it's really neat to be able to give people uh, a piece of old New York that is something that's memorable to them, you know, where they came out of a certain hotel they used to go to and during their honeymoon years or whatever, you know, it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's happened several times. I built guitars for guitarists who grew up on Eldridge street in the lower East side, you know, way back when, and they, they were doing renovations. He pulled wood out of there, and, uh, you know, and I built him a couple of guitars from that apartment building he lived in when he grew up. And, you know, it's uh, the chum, the uh, McSorley's guitar, the oldest bar in New York. I always wanted to make a guitar from that wood. And, the New York Times had written an article about me and asked me, you know, what building would you love to get wood from that you haven't? And I said, oh, McSorley's would be great. The bartenders read the article and wound up giving me wood from there. So <laughs> that's kind of the guitar we, we make in the uh, in the film. Yeah. It's actually the uh, McSorley's guitar, yeah. Wow. Is that the one that I think Charlie Sexton plays at the end of the, towards the end of the film? Yes. Yeah, that's the McSorley guitar, yeah. Wow, that's so cool. That's that's amazing. I love that. There's um, it's funny talking about the pickups. I think he's the only guy in the whole film who uses the neck pickup on uh, one of the guitars, yeah. and that sounds absolutely beautiful as well. Oh yeah, his uh, his style of playing is awesome. It was really really a pleasure to hear him play. Nice. Now that's that's interesting because he's um he plays for Dylan these days. He was a, like a teenage yeah pop rock sensation, and then. Yeah, as he's matured and grown, he's he's ended up uh, with another one of your Kelly guitar owners. So that's that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, he's a he's a, a big part of Bob's band, and uh, I think you know that Bob was playing. Uh, he had a couple of my guitars. He had the uh, Eagle Caster that he played all through uh, about two or three years ago when he was on tour. He actually sent me pictures of him playing in Beijing and in uh, Hong Kong. And, but he's mostly on keyboards now. He's got a lot of arthritis problems and isn't playing much guitar anymore. But uh, that was a real treat for me to catch it uh, towards the end of his career and have him play one of your instruments. It's just nothing more special than that. Yeah, fantastic. Can I ask you about Lou Reed? Of course, he sadly pa- has passed yeah. away in recent years, so obviously didn't make it to your film. But tell me about working with him. Yeah, Lou, uh, Lou was uh, kind of a curmudgeon of a guy. <laughs> he was a little ornery sometimes. <laughs> but uh, I knew him from way back in the 70s when he uh, there used to be a – I had a shop on Downing Street, a little shop. and It was my first shop in New York City. And his guitar player at the time, uh, Chuck, I think his name was, was living on Downing Street. And he told Lou that he found somebody that could work on his, his instrument. So that's how I got to, to know Lou in the early 70s, mid-70s. and. Then uh, I guess he bought a guitar from me in in about 1980 something. He had a couple of them then, and then towards the end of his career, his guitar tech at the time, Stuart Herward, who's also in the film, he had one of my guitars, and Lou saw that. And then Lou was auditioning for a new guitarist, and Aaron Bajakum uh, wound up in his band, and he had one of my guitars. So Lou got fascinated again by my guitars and wound up with. Uh, two or three of the Bowery Pine guitars. That's very cool. Yeah, just a really nice guy. But like I say, he was 
he would stand out in front of the store and call me on the phone and ask if he could come in. And of course, you know, the door's open, Lou. And then I realized he just wanted kind of to go in the back and not be in the front. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah. <laughs> it, wow, because when I think of him, I I think of his wife, um, Laurie Anderson, and they just seem such like the quintessential New York creative arts couple. Um, so the fact that he was playing some of your guitars is very cool. Yeah, yeah, Laurie uh, and uh, Stuart right now have been doing uh, the drones where they take loose old guitars and and uh, get them in a circular situation with the amplifiers and. They start to feed back, and they become this kind of uh, installation uh, art exhibit sort of uh, sound that happens, and they vibrate in unison. And actually, Stuart can get them to actually balance and stand up on their own just from oh, wow. the vibrations feeding off each other. Yeah, it's it's wow. fascinating how he's he's come to that area of uh, his uh, use of those same guitars. It's it's wonderful. Yeah. He just did something at St. John the Divine, one of the old famous cathedrals here in uh, in Manhattan. And uh, he just did a, an exhibition up there, which was just amazing. Brilliant. Tell me about um, working with Bill Frizzell. You guys seem to have a relationship that goes back a while. Yeah, Bill, uh, yeah, Bill is, was uh, and Mark Rebo were both uh, friends of an old good buddy of mine, Robert Quine, who passed away about 10 years ago. And Bob was a regular here. He'd come here every day. And his wife had just passed away. And so he was pretty blue and lonesome and would come by the shop just to get cheered up. And he was here all day, every day, just about for a long time. And that's how I got to know Bill and Mark through Bob. And they were old, you know, old buddies, old guitar buddies. It's funny how they had a very kind of similar style of playing, the three of them, all, all very different from each other, but in a lot of ways similar. And I have one or two recordings they did up in Bob's loft, the three of them just jamming, which I would say are as priceless as you can get any recording of the three of them playing together. But Bill, Bill's amazing. He found this guitar to be so resonant that sometimes he'll record with it without plugging it in. He actually puts little tiny microphones around oh, the front wow. of it and, cool. and just uh, records with it acoustically. Yeah, it's this wood is so resonant that it creates its own tonal that way. And, and Bill's kind of a great experimenter with sound and his uh, use of the memory man is, is famous and renowned, but uh, mm. he's an incredible player. I love that. I love the idea that he plays my guitars every now and then. Yeah, that's really cool. That's awesome. I should, I should back up a little on the guitar construction. Um, you're, you're building everything by hand. There's a great shot of you shaping a neck with, um, I think it's one of your grandfather's yeah, tools. Kirk. Yeah, with Kirk. Yeah, yeah. So- yeah. I mean, I'm I'm a more traditional tool. That's why I love using my grand my grandfather's tools, and I have some of my dad's tools, and and I just love the idea that they're you know still being used, and they're they're just amazing. When you have old tools, it's like a lot of things that are old. They were just made so well, and the steel, the quality of the steel and the tool is so much better. It holds an edge so well that uh, I can't see any reason not to use anything but that. Uh, it's just a it's just a great tool. And, yeah, using the stuff by hand, you can really custom tailor an instrument to someone. And, um, you know, you can do things that you can't do with machines. There's a lot of uh, instruments that are, are made with computer tooling nowadays, 
And uh, that I try to definitely stay as far away as possible from everything is really done with hand tools and uh, done in the old style. Uh, and I, I think, like I say, you can really tailor the instrument that way to uh, someone's hand, and their style of playing. Uh, and it, uh, it's, it's much more rewarding for me to do it that way. Do you have any unusual requests when you're building a custom instrument? Oh yeah, I mean over <laughs> over the years, uh, especially <laughs> back in the early days when I wasn't as known for a certain kind of guitar, I was building just about anything anybody wanted, and I've built guitars in the shapes of airplanes and all kinds of weird things. And people <laughs> do come up with the craziest of ideas for sure, but uh, there's they're out there, you know, somewhere there's an instrument that's in the shape of an airplane and other things that I've done over the years that uh, I kind of cringe when I look at them, <laughs> but uh, I, I had fun doing it. It was all, you know, majoring in sculpture. That was something I did in school. And, and okay. uh, yeah. I, I still have an appreciation for that. Oh, that's cool. There's, um, there's another spot in the movie. Um, I want to talk about Cindy as well. Uh, Cindy Huledge, your, your apprentice, she's flicking through this book of guitar pictures and I thought it was hers. And, you know, she mentions being, an art student, and I think I thought, okay, they're her pictures, but then she mentions it's like your notebook from the seventies of crazy guitar drawings. Yeah, yeah, they did a. Um, you know, I had a lot of a lot of crazy ideas, and I still draw every day. But uh, the stuff from the sketchbook, there's uh, all kinds of designs in there that are more sculptural and less sculptural, and you know, different, yeah. lots of different ideas. But uh, I find you know, drawing things gives you uh, opens up the idea tracked in your brain it keeps you keeps you going you know coming up with new things and as well as you know more i'm more of a traditionalist i'm i, I i've gotten known for the telecaster which is about as simple as you can get but i have tried uh every other avenue of sculptural guitars and things over the years yeah that's cool and it's cool that you still have those those notebooks that's such a great record of um oh yeah those ideas yeah tell me about working with cindy yeah, Cindy. Uh, Cindy's. Uh, she she came in here with a really great art background as well, and a real interest in learning to build. And uh, it was, you know, something I always wanted to be able to pass on to someone. And and in uh, one day, she just walked in and uh, she asked me if she could learn to build guitars here. And she's been here now for you know more than seven years, and she's got her own line of guitars. She picks up things really fast. And she's got an eye for uh, detail. And she's uh, loves working with this wood as much as I do, and she's building very similar guitars. Uh, she likes the idea of very simplicity as well, and so we're both doing very similar stuff. But um, you know, she's got another side that she can also do, which she personalizes them for people if they have ideas for something that she does in a type of pyrography, which is a form of artwork that you would uh, burn into the face of the instrument. So she's also gotten known for her pyrography work on the guitars. And uh, she does leather work, and she combines leather and, and in the guitar as well. And she's got one called a, a pickpocket moto guard, which is like a motorcycle-themed uh, guitar with a leather face. And uh, it has like beadwork around the edge and a zipper on there for your picks. And it has a real uh, kind of a punk look to it. It's really beautiful. By pyrography, um, that's like the, the wood burning and, and etching that she's doing uh, with flame and yeah. with uh, 
with with heat. Yeah, some of that stuff's incredible. There's um again from the film there's um there's that guitar with the Wilburys, the traveling Wilburys, uh etched yeah. into the yeah. into the bout, which is yeah. the lower bout, which is man, so cool. Yeah, her uh, her uh, portraiture is really exceptional. She's she can really catch the personality of uh, of the players. And each one of the guitars, she's done the Yardbirds, and she's done the Who, and she's done the Rolling Stones. And every time she does one of you, immediately know, even in the rough stage of it, that it's that person. She really does capture the personality of each player in the. Uh, in the instrument and in her drawing, she's really good with the uh, portraiture. It's such a sweet movie. It's so moving. Um, rock star guitarists aside, and um, just having you know the relationship you have with with Cindy, the friendship, and your mum works in the store. That's that's really cool. Yeah, she's uh, going on ninety four at the end of this week, and uh, oh wow, she's still uh, trucking along good, and she does all the books here and keeps the place running. Yeah. Keeps it clean and uh, you know keeps me in line. <laughs> Still my mom. <laughs> really, that's, that's beautiful. Well, happy birthday to your mom for this week. That's really cool. Yes, I'll tell her. <laughs> um, what about hardware on your on your guitars? Like you're obviously an incredible woodworker. Do you are you into creating hardware or are you using off the shelf stuff? Yeah, I, I love to uh, use. Um, different materials i've actually done a lot of metal work over the years too and uh, i like to fabricate my own pick guards and sometimes bridges um, and i like using copper and types of materials that will work well with the pine as it has that character in the the uh the wood you know sometimes i'll leave the patina in the wood and then i'll use a, a copper guard and let that tarnish and i like to use raw steel bridges so they'll start to get a little rusty and it just gives it uh, a look like it's been around for 50 years. You know, we're starting to see now guitars were first, you know, the Leo Fender guitars from the 1950s. If you see one of them now or one that's been played all those years, it has this beautiful old played in look to it. And guitars love that. And uh, that all started about uh, in the 1980s where they were doing what's called relicking on guitars to make them look like yeah, they were yeah. played in and look like they're 40 years old. And, this guitar is kind of do that naturally just by using this material, which is way older than that. It just has a, a feel about it that it's, you've been playing it for 20 years when you get it. And it doesn't feel like a new guitar. It feels like a well-worn-in guitar. It's like an old pair of jeans. It just yeah, feels more comfortable. Yeah. Really cool. And it's amazing. Everyone who picks up a guitar in the film, um, and I, these are people who are known to you, uh, some of these guys, for a long time. They know your guitars well, but it's like they pick it up and they just like, oh, okay. They, they just get a look on their face. They just relax yeah. and go, yeah. It's like an old friend they've just picked yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. yeah Jamie, uh, Jamie Hinn is in the, in the film. It kind of has that feel. And I, he was first playing one of my old 80s guitars, and it was sort of that skinny neck type of yeah. guitar that was popular then. and. Then I, you know, he was telling me about his his hand problem and his operations, and I said, "Well, you should try a guitar with a bigger neck because that's yeah. sort of a, a fallacy that the guitar companies created this rumor that skinny necks were faster, and they kept going after each other, making their necks skinnier and skinnier, and then guitarists wound up with tendonitis and carpal tunnel and other problems." Mm. Uh, we have a couple of guitarist hand surgeons here in Manhattan that were their prescription 
for getting rid of your pain is to go to a bigger neck and it, it actually really works. And you know, now the most revered guitars you can buy are from the fifties and the war era when the, the old banner J forty five Gibsons are the most sought after guitar and it has a massive neck on yeah, it. Yeah. So the big neck thing is is really makes the instrument sound a lot better, but it also is more comfortable to play. So it's become a, another signature of mine is that uh, the necks are very big. And I use uh, also the thing I do different is I make them out of the same wood I make the bodies out of. So the necks are pine and the bodies are pine and they just resonate like a different kind of instrument that you've never played before. So people are fascinated when they pick them up and they hear them. They definitely sound different to something they're not used to. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, when he, when he picks up that, that big neck, Again, the telly style, it's, uh, it's like a revelation. That's so yeah, he, cool. He wanted to run out the door with that guitar. He said, I think <laughs> I'm going to steal this guitar. That's funny. <laughs> oh, that's great. Hey, really interesting about pine as well because, you know, we know a lot of the early tellies were pine, um, but then yep. that, that went out of fashion for a long time. But I guess pine being such a great construction wood, means you've ended up with lots yeah. of pine and that's not, not the only wood you use, of course, but um, people are realising, you know, even in recent years, wow, you know, a pine guitar is actually um, such a resonant instrument. Yeah, it, uh, Leo actually made them out of pine, I believe, because he was already making amplifiers, like I was saying before. Yeah, and the yeah. first prototype and about the first five guitars were pine. But uh, he had no intention of keeping pine as the instrument because he wanted to use car colours. He wanted to use automotive paint and have a 57 T-Bird baby blue and uh, Daphne blue and all those early Fender colors were actually old car colors. The Sugarline Gold was a Cadillac color. So a lot of those uh, colors were very popular in the 1950s. And He wanted to sell his guitars with a high-gloss lacquer finish that almost looked like it was plastic. And they became more and more so as the years went by. They actually started using industrial finishes that were much thicker urethanes and catalyzed finishes that made them look like plastic. And I can remember in my early guitar stores, people would come in and say, is this made of plastic? You know, they didn't realize that they were actually made of wood underneath that. And it just kills the sound when you have this big overcoat of lacquer and thickness of paint on the instrument. It doesn't let it vibrate. So uh, by using a much more resonant wood in electric guitars, I guess a lot of people originally thought that the pickups in the guitar would be the predominant sound of the instrument, and it didn't need to be resonant. It didn't mm-hmm. need to have acoustic properties. Yeah, in a right. sense, that was true. They even made guitars out of Lucite in the 1970s. Yeah, but yeah. they were kind of dead sounding, and they sounded just like the pickups. They didn't sound like, you know, you had to really rely on your pickups because they didn't have any tone. And then they started going, well, why does this whole Fender sound better? You know, it's from the 50s, and it had that old swamp ash wood that Leo loved. And uh, so, you know, the pine came back into fashion now, I think, because of me and a few other people who are uh, using the uh, more spruce-like and soundboard-type woods in the solid bodies. Uh, And that really does make a big difference in sound, and it became popular again. Uh, Rick, I need to let you go shortly. Um, To finish up, though, did you ever think you'd be a film star in a documentary about your guitars? (laughs) Not in a million years. In fact, when you know Ron proposed this, and and uh, during the early filming, I was going like, "Why would anybody want to see a movie about me?" I just didn't get it. But after <laughs> seeing his creation, it's uh, it's really more about 
the neighborhood and about the Greenwich Village and the changing scene, and of course about me and the shop and Cindy. But uh, it, it's more than that. It's really a wonderful little film, and it's a really good guitar movie, which I guess there's very few really good guitar movies out there. Yeah, true. And so true. I think guitarists are going to... I keep telling Ron today, I said, this is going to be a cult film eventually. It'll be like Blank Generation, the old Bob Quine and the, the Voidoids movie. You know, those kind of <laughs> movies become sort of cult films that you, yeah, yeah. you would dig up in an old shop, you know? Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, I, I loved it so much. I saw... Um... Someone got in touch with me and they sent me the trailer and they said, would you be interested in talking with Rick? And like the two minutes of the trailer was just so, so beautiful and so um, heartwarming. And and I, I love guitars. I'll talk about guitars all day long, but just the story, like you said, the, the neighborhood, the human story about you and, and, and your shop. And, um, I loved it so much. Then when I saw the full film, um, it was that times a million just to see the whole thing. So yeah, um, yeah. yeah I'm I glad do. you went along with I'm glad you went along with Ron's idea, and um, yeah, congratulations on an amazing career. Um, I often ask my guests what's coming up next for you, but you really answer the question in the film yourself when you say, you know, you're just going to keep building these guitars. That's it. That's what I do, and that's what I love doing. It's not like work. It's coming here every day is is fun. And, That's uh, brilliant. It's the best thing I could ever imagine. Yeah. Fantastic, Rick. It's been lovely to meet you. Thank you so much for your time and um, and all the very best. All I right. hope to Hope to drop in one day. Uh, you're on my bucket list now. Oh, cool. Yeah, stop by. We're open every day. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> Thanks, Rick. Have a great day. All right. You too. Bye bye. All right, there you go, my conversation with Rick Kelly. Now the film is called Carmine Street Guitars, named after Rick's shop, and there are some links in our show notes for you to check out. I love the film, and it was so cool to meet Rick. Hey, coming up on our show next week, we have Tal Wilkenfeld, incredible bass player. Can't wait to share that interview with you. And we also have T-shirts available now. Check those out on our website, guitarspeakpodcast.com. Also on the site, you can find out all the information about subscribing to the show and our social media contacts, all that kind of stuff. All right, then, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. My name's Matt Wakeling, and you've been listening to the Guitar Speak podcast. I'll catch you next time. Bye now.